This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on that study. Father, we are so thankful that we can come together this morning to study your word, to be reminded of the life that we are to live because we are adopted into your royal family. And as such, we live according to a higher standard, a higher ethic, a standard that is indeed supernatural for in our own ability, we do not have the capability to live this life. Only when we are empowered by God the Holy Spirit can we implement the truth of your word into our life in such a way that it has eternal value and has spiritual significance for our own uh, spiritual life, our own spiritual growth. Father, we pray that as we study today that you might challenge us with areas wherein we need to apply these principles, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, the focal point of this passage is on condemning others. It is unfortunate that the first verse has been translated, do not uh, judge one another, because the word judge has a wide variety of connotations And what is being emphasized here is not the connotation of evaluation or critical thinking, but the idea of self-righteous condemnation of others. Before we get into the passage, though, I do want to make a couple of comments related to current events. Right now, we've been watching, and I hope many of you have been watching and being uh, kept informed on what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, We do have a... uh, Dean Bible Ministries Facebook page, and you can go there, and I've been posting a number of links and and, uh, different things that can be uh, followed, places you can go for information. Uh, As I pointed out earlier, we have friends who are Israelis, friends of this congregation, and we need to be in in prayer for them. But I think it's remarkable that uh, the, the Israeli government and the Israeli military has uh, taken it upon themselves to have probably one of the probably the highest standard, the highest ethical standard of any army in the world. You hear often on news broadcasts, depending on what you who you listen to and what station you're listening to, an emphasis on the casualties in Gaza, but there won't be any mention of how many rockets are being fired into Israel or the fact 
that it was due to a continuous rocket fire from Gaza that is the cause of, of this conflict. And it didn't just start last week or the week before. It wasn't just related to uh, either the uh, the uh, uh, kidnapping and murder of the three Israeli teens. It's not related to, the, to a reaction to the uh, Arab teen that was uh, brutally murdered. Neither does it apply to the cousin of that murdered teen who was, uh, you saw, probably saw the videos of him being beaten by some Israeli police. And, of course, that's the last most people saw. They don't hear the rest of the story. That that young teen, who's also an American citizen, and that was often brought out in the news, whereas one of the three Israeli teens that was uh, kidnapped and murdered was also an American citizen. You rarely, I don't think you ever heard anybody say anything about that. And every politician needs to be condemned for this. Not one politician that I know of, Democrat, Republican, Independent, whatever, not one came out and said, this is an American citizen. We need to punish Hamas for this. We don't have any leadership in any party, anywhere on this side of the of the Atlantic Ocean. They're all a bunch of ignorant cowards. It just is appalling to see this. And yet this young man that was beaten, the other one that was beaten, what we haven't heard is that he had in his hands a Molotov cocktail, uh, a knife, and some other weapons. That is ignored. So you can't just go by what you hear in the news. You really have to dig uh, to get that information. But Israel has a high standard. And that high standard tells them that they, uh, they're going to be held to this higher standard, and if they're going to go in and attack Hamas, and Hamas hides behind the um, uh, innocent civilians, they hide their weapons and their, their arsenals in homes and hospitals and schools and, and mosques, that the Israelis have to go to a much higher standard. And what's, what, one of the things that they do is they, if they're going to target a house and they have documented this, what they've got is they've got a huge supply of drones, uh, some of them not any bigger than a salad plate, and they'll send these drones in and they're not very visible, uh, 100, 200 feet above the ground, and they will spot, uh, some of the, uh, uh, uh Arabs running out and setting up a little, uh, uh, missile to fire off into Israel, and then they track them back to their home. And then they can read all the cell phone traffic and listen into all the cell phone traffic that goes into that house, and they can identify all of their connections and all of their networks, and they can track all of these people. And so their intelligence network is phenomenal. So they'll identify a house that ha- is uh, a, the home of a uh, Hamas leader, that is a place where weapons are stored, and then they'll uh, perform what they call a knock on the roof, and they will drop uh, one of the drones. They'll send in two drones. Typically, they'll send in two drones that are watching this house. They'll drop a small explosive on the roof of the house to warn everybody in the house that a missile is incoming, and they have about 30 seconds to get out of the house. They will also drop leaflets uh, on the house to let the people know that they need to get out. They also have identified the cell phone numbers of everybody in the house, and they will send them all text messages that they are about to receive an incoming missile. 
Now, what army in the world does that and el- totally eliminates the whole uh, aspect of, of surprise? And then the missile comes in, but we never hear that on, on the news. That is a higher standard. Now, the point that we're looking at in our passage today emphasizes that as Christians, we have a higher standard, a higher standard for how we live and how we interact with people around us. And there's a contrast that is brought out, as I've taught throughout the Sermon on the Mount, between the self-righteous mentality of the, of the uh, Pharisees and their interpretation of the Mosaic Law and the way in which they should be applying the Mosaic Law as it was intended by God. And so Jesus is giving a divine viewpoint interpretation of of the Mosaic Law. So he comes to this particular section, and he says to his disciples, he's not talking to unbelievers, he's talking to believers, talking to his disciples, and he says, "'Judge not that you be not judged.'" For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so the point that he's making is when you exercise a a self-righteous condemnation towards others, then there will be a judgment in kind from God, a divine discipline that is brought to bear on us in relation to our own judgmental attitude. And then in verses 3 through 5, he talks about the, the issue is that we should not be so self-absorbed that we don't first identify the problems in our own lives before we try to help others. And I want you to note that there's, there's nothing that says we shouldn't help others or we shouldn't at times point out flaws or failures in others. But it should be after we have dealt with issues in our own lives because we have to develop humility. In uh, Galatians 6.1, we're told he who is spiritual is to correct a brother who is in spiritual failure, not out of self-righteousness, not in outside of a context of a relationship. See, there's too many people who are busybodies who just want to run around and straighten people out. But this is in the context of, of relationships, within the context of marriages, within the context of friendships, within the context of, of families. One of the, uh, one of the things that is very popular and has been very popular in Western civilization for the last hundred years, but especially the last fifty years, is psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and, and, uh, uh, talk therapy, all of which is designed to help people overcome problems. And as I went through a number of years, uh, after seminary, investigating, studying, looking to see what, if anything, was of value in counseling and counseling techniques and all of this, the one thing that kept impressing itself on me is basically a psychotherapist is a paid friend. You go to talk to somebody, because we live in a culture where people don't have intimate friendships anymore. Everybody's in a hurry. Nobody has someone that they can really confide in, someone that they can talk with about things that they are facing in life. And so the things build up and build up and build up until they have various crises in their own life. And then they have to go to pay somebody to be a friend, to listen to them, and then uh, tell them how to work their way out of their problems. Within the body of Christ, there is a built-in framework for that, 
if we have built that framework of relationships. It's not outside of that. So I don't want people to get the wrong idea and think, well, we're to go around and help other people solve their problems. We are, but within that context of relationships that have already been there, not somebody you just casually know from church and or somebody you just talk to every now and then, but as you have built and developed relationships with people over time, then we have that we've established a foundation of trust a foundation of confidence, a foundation of privacy, and a foundation where we truly respect one another and are willing to help one another. And then we go into all of those passages we've studied in the past related to the uh, mandates for one another in the Christian life. We're to pray for one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to admonish one another. We are to uh, help strengthen one another. That's all part of it, but it's in that context of having built friendships within the body of Christ wherein that can take place. Otherwise, what happens is we simply become self-righteous, busybodies who run around trying to straighten everybody else out without really understanding what those dynamics are, and this is where you end up with a superficial form of religion as you have with Phariseeism. So in Matthew 7, 4, Jesus says, How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? That would be some small problem, relatively speaking, in their life. And look, a plank, the idea of a speck is a piece of straw, a piece of dust, something that's gotten in your eye, in contrast to the other person who has a large problem, uh, illustrated by the uh, plank metaphor. He's got a plank in his own eye. And then Jesus says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice he doesn't say you don't help them with their problem. It says first you have to have the humility and and the dependence upon God and the spiritual growth to deal with your own problems, your own challenges, and then once we've done that, then we have a framework for helping others. A great example that I see in this congregation is that we have a number of ladies over the last 10 years whose husbands have gone to be with the Lord, some who uh, were widowed prior to that. And they are a great support group for one another. And when one has gone through that and has gone through the loss of a husband, then she has an understanding of what a person experiences going through that grief process. And so when... Uh, this happens to another lady and her husband dies, then there is a mature, and the Scripture emphasizes that, that the mature uh, women in the congregation can help uh, strengthen and encourage the younger ones. And in that context, it's primarily talking about the older mature women with younger women, but also it applies in this kind of a situation where they can help them as they work through the challenges that they're facing as they're, as they're handling grief. It brings out this whole emphasis of the doctrine of, of one another. The problem is we get sucked into judgmentalism and self-righteousness because of our sin nature. 
And I pointed this out last time, that the very core of the sin nature, as we look at this, this great diagram, it's, this is so helpful as we analyze ourselves, is to understand the dynamics of our own sin nature. We're motivated by a lust pattern that is really a seat of arrogance in our sin nature. We're just so self-absorbed. We have areas in our life where we're very moral. It's called an area of strength. We perform good works. We're not tempted to sin in those particular areas. And so we don't quite understand what it's like when other people succumb to sin in those areas. And that's when we really get tempted to judge others. We see somebody else across the congregation succumb to some uh, sin, some temptation, and as a result we uh, get up on our arrogant high horse and judge them and condemn them. That's what Jesus is countering in this passage. But that's a sin. We all commit uh, personal sins. We all have areas where we're very prone to commit personal sins, and we have other areas where we're not. The areas where we're not is what I talked about earlier, the area of, hum- of, of strength, but in the area of weaknesses, this is where we easily succumb. We have sins in three categories. You have mental attitude sins, you have sins of the tongue, and you have overt sins. Mental attitude sins are sins such as anger, jealousy, envy, any of those can be the motivation for judging other people, condemning them. And so when we judge somebody uh, and we are being con- uh, condemnatory toward them, that is a sin of the tongue, but it is instigated by a mental attitude sin. So we already have two sins there that we're, that we're dealing with. Now, those uh, sins can trend in two different directions, they can trend in one direction that I've identified as moral degeneracy. It's indicated by asceticism, legalism. This is the track on the pharisaical side. They were moral degenerates. They were so self-righteous. They thought they were superior to everyone else, and this led to these these sins of, of being uh, judges of others. On the other hand, you have those who are have a trend towards uh, licentiousness or lasciviousness, antinomianism, they just they easily sin and they, they know that, well, I have no hope of ever, ever really being moral. Uh, they're not, the, people like that generally are not that judgmental because they know that they have so many weaknesses in their life. And I think that a people who have a trend in that direction also can have a, a little easier time understanding grace and being grace oriented and being, being humble. Behind this, we have the dynamic of the arrogant skills. We're, gen- we're all self-absorbed. That's how we come out of the womb. We're focused on just me. It's all about me. It's like this speech that our president gave two days ago, or two or three days ago in Texas, 15-minute speech. He mentioned I or me or mine 199 times. That's self-absorption. That's narcissism. Uh, we get so focused on ourselves that we indulge our every whim. When we're self-indulgent, we're oblivious to other people and other people's problems and situations. The more indulgent we are, the more we seek to justify 
and rationalize our actions until we become blinded to our own flaws and failures, at which time we set ourselves up as judges of everyone else. It's everyone else's fault. Everybody else is the problem. It's not my problem at all, at which point we have come into self-deception. At that point, we can no longer see reality for what it is. We can no longer understand what's right and what's wrong and what the distinctions are because we are living in a fantasy world of our own making because we have, and this is the fifth uh, stage of arrogant skills, we have made ourselves God. And when we are judging others in this sort of self-absorbed way of condemnation, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. That's the issue here. We are assuming we know people's uh, inner thoughts, their motivations. We understand uh, everything about their life, and so we can uh, stand in judgment of them, uh, but we have no basis for doing that. This gives us a background for understanding the mechanics, the focus of the passage. So Jesus began saying, judge not that you be not judged. And the word that he uses here is the word crino. Crino basically means to judge, to condemn, or to punish. Further, it means to evaluate or discriminate or to distinguish between two things. Now, that's a very different idea when we talk about evaluation or discrimination in a positive sense than being harshly critical uh, of people and condemning them. It also has the idea of consideration or making a decision, giving preference of one thing or another, or approving something. It can even carry the idea of punishment. So it has a broad range of meanings. So we really have to look at the primary uh, the meaning in this passage and not try to make the word carry the weight of all of these different meanings. One of the things that Jesus is emphasizing here is that this kind of judgmental attitude comes from self-righteousness, which excludes humility and any expression of grace. If we're going to uh, be grace-oriented in our spiritual life in order to grow, if we are going to have uh, humility, as we talked about last time, then we cannot be self-absorbed, we cannot be operating on arrogance. This is, this is demonstrated by the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 7.24, Jesus says in his uh, conf- uh, confrontation with the Pharisees, he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So there he's talking about it's okay to make evaluations, but it has to be done according to God's standards. We're not being uh, harshly critical of people. This is in the sense of making an, an evaluation, but not on the basis of superficial appearance. This is what the Pharisees were doing. I'll give you an example in just a minute. Another verse is John 8:15, where Jesus said, you judge according to the flesh. This is a Pharisees. They judge according to a superficial standard, verse 24. They judged according to a non-biblical standard in John 8:15. And then Jesus said, I judge no one. 
Now, when Jesus came at the first advent, he did not come to judge. We'll look at that in just a minute. But the example we have of pharisaical self-righteousness, the classic example, is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 11 through 14. And there we read of a Pharisee who comes to pray in the temple, and this is how he prays. He comes, and as he comes to the temple to pray, there's also a tax collector who is there. Now, the tax collectors of that time were even scummier than some of the IRS officials you may think of today, especially if you are uh, up on current events. In the ancient world, uh, the uh, the managers of the Roman Empire would hire tax collectors, and the tax collector was given an amount of money that they needed to collect by a certain time to return to Rome. Anything they collected over that was what they got to keep. And so you didn't have computer records to mysteriously disappear. You didn't have any uh, any forms to fill out. They just would go out and arbitrarily assign values to people's uh, lives, possessions, homes, or whatever, and then they would collect it and give a what they were required to give to the Roman Empire and keep the rest. So they were they were viewed as being somewhat traitors to the uh, Jewish population. They were not viewed with uh, any value. They were on a, on a par with uh, the lower lowest levels of the socioeconomic strata and the lowest levels of the more moral strata. Tax collectors, pimps, prostitutes were all kind of in the same bag. So the Pharisee come, comes into the temple and he sees this tax collector, and he is immediately self-righteously offended by the by the mere presence of this tax collector and he prays thus with him, with himself so this is silent prayer he said god i thank you that i'm not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even as this tax collector i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i possess his emphasis is totally on this external, superficial, uh, legalistic uh, observance without any impact on his mental attitude, on his character, on his orientation to grace. And in contrast, we see the tax collector in verse 13. The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to, to heaven, See, this is why I think typically the licentious antinomian individual understands they're they're not worthy of anything from God. They can never earn anything from God. They're totally aware of their failures and their flaws. And he is standing afar off. He won't even look up to God because he realizes how unworthy he is. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He recognizes his only hope is to throw himself upon the mercy of God's character. Total contrast with the Pharisee. And then Jesus states in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So if we apply this to the situation in Matthew 7, we see that Jesus is talking about uh, that this one should not judge, lest you, uh, we should judge not lest we be judged, because that flows out of a mentality of arrogance and is the opposite of, 
of humility. And in uh, John chapter 3, verse 17, we're told that Jesus did not come to judge, but he came to bring men to salvation. So his focal point of his ministry was not to condemn people, even though his condemnation would be just and righteous, but that wasn't the focal point of the first advent. In the same way, that is not the role of the believer today to go about judging and condemning others, but to bring them to an understanding of grace and an understanding of the gospel. Now, as we look at this, the first point I looked at was that the uh, that self-righteousness excludes humility and any comp- comprehension of grace. Secondly, we see that Jesus is condemning only these actions of being negatively judgmental or hypercritical, of condemning other people. He is not talking about critical thinking skills. He's not condemning the use of uh, judges in courtrooms, which is how uh, uh, Leonid Tolstoy took this. Uh, he's not condemning the use of the courtrooms. He is simply talking about this uh, negative hypercritical mentality. But even as we look at the the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples to exercise critical thinking skills and to evaluate people around them. For example, in Matthew 7:15, Jesus tells them, "Beware of false prophets." Well, in order to beware of false prophets, you have to evaluate what they are saying. You have to think about their conduct as well as their teaching in order to come to a conclusion uh, about them. But that doesn't mean you are being harshly critical of them or saying anything to anyone about them, although there may be a framework uh, for doing so. So Jesus expects his followers to think correctly and precisely about doctrine. Matthew eighteen fifteen through 18 talks about personal circumstances where if someone, another believer, has, has uh, done something to offend you, then you go and tell him his fault. You explain to him what the circumstance is that has caused a problem between you, and you seek to bring that to resolution. That is not being harshly critical or judgmental. Uh, that would be a contradiction then to what Jesus said. So he expects us to to talk out problems and when there are difficulties between us and to have you exercise evaluation at that point. In Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. That calls for evaluation. That calls for discrimination in a good sense. That calls for doctrinal discernment and making decisions and applying them to avoid those who are teaching uh, false doctrine. All of this is very much a part of of, uh, the Christian life and is expected to be part of the Christian life. Now, in Matthew 7, 3 through 5, Jesus goes on to give an example. He says, why do you look at this speck in your brother's eye? And by doing this, he is simply emphasizing that when we look at the other person, we see a problem that that it's not our problem. 
we wouldn't have that problem. Seems pretty obvious to other to, to us that that person must be a real idiot uh, to have that problem. They haven't they figured out yet? They don't need to have that kind of attitude or that opinion or that action as part of their life. So we're making a huge thing out of it. And really, it's something rather small compared to our own flaws and our own failures. So this sort of harsh condemnation takes a look at another person and focuses on their sins, blows them out of proportion, and focuses on them from a position of arrogance and a position of judgmentalism. We, we know enough to understand their motives, understand their flaws, and so we are going, going to pronounce the kind of judgment that only God could pronounce. And so he says, when you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank, this is a word for a log, something large that is in your own eye, the contrast between something that is small and relatively insignificant compared to a character flaw or failure that is quite large and quite significant. Jesus then says, How can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye? What arrogance to think that you can come along and straighten somebody else out, especially when you haven't walked by the Holy Spirit and walked in humility so that you have dealt with the problems in your own life. This isn't just talking about uh, confession of sin and rebound. This is talking about actually, actually continuing in the sin as if it's not a sin or not a flaw at all. You're totally blind to this, and you haven't dealt with it in terms of sanctification, in terms of growth, in terms of progress. In verse 5, he says, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We need to be focused on our own spiritual growth and spiritual advance, We need to tend to the problems in our own life rather than focusing on other people's problems. And as we learn to grow and mature uh, spiritually, then when the proper time and context and circumstance arises, then we can maybe be of some benefit in encouraging others in areas where they are struggling. As we look at this passage, we see that there are several levels of discipline that are brought out by Jesus. First of all, he says, don't judge. So if we are judging, we're violating, we're violating that command. So we are committing a verbal sin of gossip or judging or maligning someone. As I pointed out, the second area is that we have a mental attitude sin that's motivating that, a sin of pride, a sin of anger, a sin of resentment, a sin of hatred. And so that's a second sin for which God will discipline us. And then what Jesus goes on to say is that in the way you judge, you establish a standard and you will be judged. The classic illustration of this really comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is the situation where David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba got pregnant. 
David decided he needed to cover the whole thing up, so he tried to uh, get her husband, Uriah, who was one of his mighty men, one of his generals, to come back and take a couple of nights R&R, and hopefully he would have a conjugal visit with his wife, and she would be preg- then, then her pregnancy would be attributed to him and not to David. But this didn't work out because Uriah had too much integrity. So when he came home, rather than going home to be with his wife, he said, my men are in the field. My men cannot take time to be with their families. I should not take time to be with my family, so I'm just going to sleep uh, outside the door. And so he never did enter into intimate relations with Bathsheba. And so David knew that his his uh, sin of adultery, which was a capital crime under the Mosaic law, would be exposed. And so he compounded the sin even further by calling in his uh, his relative Joab, who was the general of his army. And he called in Joab and he said, Joab, I, what I want you to do is to put Uriah in the hot spot of the conflict. Put him right up there on the front lines where this, the heat of the battle will come and, and he'll take care of things. And of course, David's plan was that, that was what happened. Uriah would be killed. So he's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of conspiracy to commit murder. He's guilty of committing murder. And all of this cover up means that God is going to bring judgment and divine discipline upon David. The way God brought the, brought that to David was via his prophet Nathan. And he sent Nathan to, to David, and in a very subtle and wise way, uh, Nathan told a little parable to, uh, to David. And he said, uh, there was a rich man who had everything. He wanted for nothing. He had herds. He had flocks. He had possessions. He had everything. And then there was this poor man who had only one possession, a prized little ewe lamb that he had raised from, from, from birth, and that was all he had. And the rich man had a visitor come. The rich man was so stingy, he wouldn't give up of anything that he had in order to feed his visitor. So he looked over and he saw this poor farmer with this one poor little ewe lamb, and he decided, well, I'm just going to take his ewe lamb. He doesn't have much. He won't miss it. And in arrogance, he, he took that, that ewe lamb and killed it, slaughtered it to feed his guest. David immediately became incensed at the injustice of this and said, that man should pay fourfold. David is announcing his own judgment. And that is uh, an example of what we see here, that uh, God is going to bring a, uh, a judgment in kind by your own standard of measure it will be measured to you. And so David went through a period where there were four different losses, four different tragic events in his life, each of which was related to uh, uh, adultery or sexual sin or, or, or murder, and in some cases, all of the above. And you had a case where uh, his daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother. You had a case then where uh, Absalom, the full brother of Tamar, uh, came to ki- and killed the half-brother. That was the second sin. And then, the, the, um, uh, then he goes on, and Absalom leads a rebellion against David and takes David's wives as his own and has relations with each of them in order to assert that he is now king. So he has stolen David's wife, 
wives in the same way that David stole Uriah's wife. And then at the end of the episode, Absalom is killed in his rebellion, and so there is that that death of Absalom, David's favorite son. So he received that divine discipline based upon his own uh, his own measure. Now, as Jesus concludes in verse verse five, he says, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, that's not the end of his application. Now, in most of your Bibles, there is a paragraph mark, if it indicates it, before verse six, but verse six continues the topic. It's not just inserted. Some commentaries say this is just sort of a standalone verse, but it's related. He says, Jesus says, don't give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. In the ancient world, dogs were not the wonderful beloved pets that they are in our culture. Uh, dogs were scavengers. Dogs were feral. Dogs were wild. Uh, they they roamed the streets and uh, were scavengers and ate the garbage. They were dirty. They were uh, vile. They were uh, vicious and diseased. And so people had nothing uh, nothing good to say about dogs. And dogs became an epithet uh, for Gentiles. And so he says, don't give what is holy, don't give food that is sanctified to the dogs. Secondly, he says, don't cast your pearls, that is something of value, before swine. Swine uh, were unclean animals according to the Mosaic law. And they were considered by the Jews to be the epitome of uncleanness. And so what Jesus is pointing out here is that it may come that where we have an opportunity to point out a speck in our brother's eye. But, you know, they may not be receptive. They may be arrogant. They may not be humble. They may not be responsive to the word of God at all, in which case we would be just creating more problems and more conflict by pointing out a problem that needs to be fixed, and they're not responsive to the fact that they're at fault. And so Jesus warns here, be very careful in how you handle this kind of a situation, because they may not be responsive at all, and you would just be wasting your time. You would be taking valuable counsel, and you would be giving it to someone who would not value it. So we need to exercise great humility and great discretion with our humility in how we handle any situation where we seek to point out a flaw or a problem in someone else and seek to resolve the circumstance or the situation. What undergirds this and what must undergird this is grace orientation. If we don't have grace orientation, if we are not humble, if we are not teachable, if we have not grown in our own spiritual life, then we do not have any framework, any basis, any foundation to ever help anybody else or point out anything else in anybody else's life. We can't fall into the trap of self-righteousness. We can't fall into the trap of being judgmental or critical of others when we ourselves have enough to deal with in terms of our own spiritual life. And so Jesus contrasts the behavior, the ethic, 
that the Pharisees were putting forth with the higher ethic, the higher standard that should characterize someone who is a true child of God and someone who is truly seeking to walk in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, think our way through this text and to be reminded that that we all easily succumb to arrogance. We all easily succumb to self-righteousness in one way or another, and yet this calls us back to reality, recognizing that first we have to deal with the sins, the failures, the flaws in our own life before we run around judging, condemning, criti- being unduly critical of others for their failures and their flaws. Father, we recognize that uh, every one of us is a sinner. As Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but you have laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Our starting point must be humility, and the starting point of salvation is a humility recognizing that there's nothing we can do to render ourselves savable or to make ourselves saved. That work was performed exclusively and completely and sufficiently by Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty in your place and in my place so that all we have to do is trust in him and him alone, and we have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would make this truth so very clear to each and every one, and we pray that you would be with us as we go about our week, that we might not forget that which we have learned today, and the Holy Spirit would drive this home to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.